Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Host, that's two, because I always realize I say host singular, but Austin Ye and... And Mayu. I'm pretty sure you say host, man, with the S. Do I? Yeah, you're just a little bit illiterate. Sometimes I okay. listen back and I'm like, I'm the one who works critic. We had a long freaking day yesterday, so, so that's okay. You got excuses. But for anyone that doesn't know, we're recording this the day after our Rise Fall event. Uh, we are going to be having another one probably within a month before we wrap up for the year. I know we're very... uh consistent <laughs> um, <laughs> making up for lost time <laughs> because six was no event and now one one and then the after whatever but awesome what's been going on how'd you find the event yesterday what are you kind of main takeaways kind of give everyone a rundown the event was really good i had a lot of great conversations honestly i am shocked with uh, the sort of the reach that we have with this platform we had someone that came down from uh, nova scotia for three days that was crazy yeah and coming down to the event I'm sure you're listening to this podcast, as I mentioned in person, hit me up. I feel so bad that you came all the way down to see me and my, I don't know when I, I think we're nothing, you know, special, yeah. but uh, <laughs> hit me up and we'll jump on a zoom call. But other than that, man, had a lot of fantastic conversations, seeing people do different, unique stuff, met people who are looking to invest in the States, met someone who's pretty young and has actually invested in the States already with a couple of properties there with assumable mortgages. So pretty unique way for Canadian uh, to jump in there. People who are private lending, people who are doing multifamilies, it's just people in all sorts of spectrum in their journey. A lot of people doing cool stuff and a couple of people who I thought would be pretty cool to have on the podcast because I think that the audience will get a ton of value from as well. So um, I think we're going to have some pretty cool guests coming up that we met throughout the event. How about you? How did you find everything? I'd, I'd echo that. I think uh, one kind of coolish observation was if you take this back. Okay. So we did, obviously we did events pre-COVID. That was cool. That was fine. And then we did events, I think in, was it the end of 2020 or maybe early 2021 that we did one in a park, right? It's a lot of similar faces that are coming on. We're stacking on new people. Some people will stop coming, whatever. Right. But the audience or the people that are attending you kind of see the same people over and over again. And you like, this is one guy, very consistent. So he lived in Toronto and then it was a simple change of, he moved out of Toronto, moved, I, I saw you talking to him as well, Austin, moved out of Toronto, moved into his parents' house, started renting out his condo on Airbnb, generating about 6,000 a month there. And I was just like, dude, and he's like saving the 3,000 that he would have spent in like rent expense or mortgage expense, whatever you want to call it, right? And he's just kind of like stacking on, right? So it's kind of cool. Like, and then you've got people that had no properties that now have like five or six properties. and. So it's cool to kind of see the evolution of like various people that just like over the last like one or two years and sick to kind of think about where everyone's going to go in the next like two to three years. Right. But yeah, a lot more interesting strategies that people are doing. Like you said, like you're finding the U.S. stuff is, is big. A lot of people were talking about it, asking about it. Some people like entryway into like development or like fourplex kind of conversion strategies. Ran to couple people doing that kind of stuff. That was pretty cool. Not too many private lenders for me, man. And we put up our, we put it, we asked anyone if there's like private lenders in the audience. And surprisingly, we had very few people, but it's kind of an indication of uh, where, what people are doing with their money. So I just thought it was pretty cool there too. But yeah, man, it's always fun. I come back feeling super drained as a introvert by nature. And uh, 
Yeah, so I'm still exhausted. I'm low energy today. This is fun. <laughs> I'm pretty low energy too. I'll feel you on that one. Um, why don't we just sort of give a quick update on some of the topics that we chatted about with our presentation. For those who were at the event, you know, we had about a 40 minute presentation. <laughs> uh, ideally, we wanted to keep it within 20, but I want a little bit longer, but we'll try to do a short condensed version here. I'll try to condense my part. Maya, you try to condense your part. Hopefully get value from it here. Long story short, we're talking about the jobs report, unemployment being at 5.5%, but uh, past four months, it was increasing. Most of the job being in the construction sector. So just something to consider is, are these construction jobs going to be stable or not? Are they going to be sustainable? Because they're highly tied to the real estate industry, right? Also, inflation reports, uh, inflation, headline inflation shot back up. Um, obviously not ideal, driven by energy prices. Most economists and analysts think that inflation, headline inflation is continue to go up, is going to continue to go up because of uh, energy prices continuing to store. Core inflation remaining stickier than usual, even though it's declining. So that's another indicator to keep out for. Bank of Canada rates being held. Man, I should have just done it like this at the... <laughs> Why do you want to do it like this? You want me to summarize it and just say we're all fucked? Like, what I did. You no, did no, 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 <laughs> no. Long story short, basically where I'm trying to go with this is that short term, uh, obviously indicators are not favorable, but that's not news to anyone. Anyone who just looks at the media or just goes out and speaks to people day to day, know that people are struggling, right? But the long-term view is still pretty optimistic. There's a housing shortage, not surprised. We undercounted uh, non-permanent residents by a million people. CIBC published that report there. We're letting in what we let in over 1.1 million people last year. Our target is 450 to 550,000 permanent residents. On top of that, another 60% of non-permanent residents. So still targeting over a million people per year. Permits are going down. Housing construction is going down because of uh, current real estate conditions. So obviously that's setting us up long term for sort of a difficulty uh, in the housing market. But that meaning upward pressure in prices, right? People are not going to be able to keep up with the supply of housing that needs to be done. We need to more than double our output. But in the short term, the indicators show that there are headwinds in the short term. But long term, I still think that there's a real estate to viable investment. But that, that's sort of my part in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I touched on inflation, but Austin kind of covered both. So basically, my entire theory is that like there's only so much that we can really do to get it under control. It's ultimately a global problem. And then second was that GDP per capita is decreasing significantly in Canada, which while even if GDP was increasing, which it, it's been declining for the last a bit on a per individual level, it's essentially decreasing. Right. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then the second thing, I guess, uh, Open Table actually published a pretty cool report, which we kind of talked about as well. But overall, there's less, less people eating out, right? Which is kind of a pretty cool metric. It kind of shows the pinch that people are feeling. And then we won't go to kind of the population boom and stuff like that. I touched on some of the opportunities that we're seeing. So essentially, a lot of first-time homebuyers, if any of you guys are out there, first-time homebuyers looking to buy your first property, I'd point you guys into like the assignment pre-con market to try and find some decent deals. But honestly, even the ability to be able to lock up stuff, condition off like four or five days is pretty sick. Tertiary markets, honestly, the single-family homes are still moving. Not too much of a discount from peak markets, right? Multifamily apartments, we talked about how vacant unit flipping is, has huge potential because the value of these apartment buildings skyrockets once you've got the vacant units in them. Debt consolidation is big right now. Unfortunately, right, it's just a reality. A lot of people are tapping into their equity. Liquidity is tightening. So what the, the interesting part about that is, yeah, we already need liquidity with signing. But interestingly, a lot of syndicated deals, uh, we're seeing more attractive equity splits as a result of kind of the current environment with limited uh, liquidity in the individual investor class. Active business investing is big. There's a lot of the government uh, loan programs essentially to kind of help you turn around businesses or 
implement technology or buy equipment and stuff like that. And then we talked about kind of the, the significance of construction in today's world, whether it's garden suites, multiplexes, or even multifamily rental units. I think kind of uh, those are three categories that I'd be betting on to kind of grow into in the next couple of years. So that in a nutshell is everything that we fucking talked about yesterday. And we made it into a 40 minute presentation. Well, Myron had a part to play in that as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> we should have had him on this preamble too, to, to share his part. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I think we don't want to bore you. We don't want to make this preamble 45 minutes long like we did our presentation. So I think we'll just add it off here and jump straight into the podcast. We have Clark Gale today. Clark is our actually a realtor in Windsor who's helped us list a couple of our properties uh, recently. But on top of being a realtor extraordinaire, he's also a developer. He helps construct tiny homes. It was actually the first builder to build a tiny home in the Windsor area. So obviously a pioneer in what he does. He has multiple businesses outside of construction, realtor and real estate investing himself. He actually gets into a cool topic where he's actually bringing windows from Toronto down in Windsor and selling it at a discount. So like so many different cool topics that we dive into. You guys are definitely going to enjoy this episode and make sure if you do enjoy it, leave us a five-star review, share it with a friend and let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Clark Galley. Clark, how's it going, man? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. For sure. I think it's a little bit long over to you, Clark. I think I've done it, but you and you've been a great resource. So, and very well accomplished. I don't know how we haven't had you on all this time, but Clark, for everyone that doesn't know you, why don't you give them a quick background on yourself, how you got started in this space and a high level on everything you took today. And then we'll, we'll make sure we dive into all the current stuff that you're up to. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not really much on social media, so maybe that's said that I didn't get hit in the roster for the, uh, the podcast. But anyway, nonetheless, glad to that you want to talk about it. So yeah, kind of quick, I guess, minute summary of what I've done. I actually did my first real estate deal while in my last year of high school. So Matthew and Cassidy, they were kind of the Windsor guys down in Windsor, and I did student works painting for them. So I actually was one of their first employees and I had a painting company. And as I was talking with them, one of the jobs we did was painting a triplex they had. And they were like 19 or 20 at the time, had this beautiful triplex right on like Lincoln, right close to the water in Morkerville. And I was like, how the hell does this even work? How do you guys own a triplex? Like it just blew my freaking mind. And they invited me back to their place. We had some tea and they kind of taught me what a mortgage was, what a credit card was, what um, a down payment is, what a house is, what rentals are. And basically in a couple hours sitting down with them, they taught me everything they know about real estate and went home, just went at Kijiji and found a bunch of deals and ended up wholesaling a deal to Matt and Cass. It was a duplex for like 79 grand back in the day. So just an insane, insane deal. And then after that, did a couple more wholesale deals, finished my bachelor of finance in computer science here at University of Windsor, then went to start a property management company, started that company and sold it to about 67 units, then sold it to another person in the city. Then when I worked at CBRE, the world's largest commercial real estate company for about a year, doing strictly industrial and office and land deals. I actually underwrote one of the largest office to residential deals in Windsor, crazy cool building downtown. Right when COVID hit, the world was changing, thought I'd change my life as well. Quit that job, started as a realtor and tidy home company. And I've since done about 125 transactions and built about 20 units. A lot, a lot, a lot to unpack there, man. I actually didn't know your beginnings that you were in finance and comp sci. And I guess that one conversation you had with them just totally pushed you into the the real estate lifestyle. Funny enough, they actually helped me as well when I got started investing <laughs> in Windsor. So 
we have a mutual beginnings there. I'm surprised the comp size what you found amazing. I, I had no idea you were, you had a property management business that you worked at CBRE. I feel like I didn't know Clark before COVID maybe. That, that's probably what it is. But yeah, I, I'm going to start with the first question because it's, it's the very beginnings of your journey. And we don't, we very rarely have many property managers, I think, on the podcast. So I'm curious how that business was, how you grew it, what you liked, what you didn't, and then how you sold it, which I'm also like really curious about. Yeah. Yeah. At the time there, like I was the proclamation company as well. I was doing the finance and computer science degree. So my outbound, I was like, I might as well start a company. And while I was in finance, it was like, how do you value companies? And I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. I get to build a company and evaluate it at the same time. Like what key metrics help drive the value of a company? Like that's, that's pretty interesting. So I knew I wanted to get into real estate. Like after Matt Cass talked to them, I was like, this is so cool. Being able to make a couple grand at the wholesale fee is just blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, real estate's so sick. So I was like, okay, I got to start a company here. I was a property manager. That seems easy enough. So I literally posted ads on Kijiji and Facebook Marketplace and Bigger Pockets. I had a whole list of all the Bigger Pockets people that had accounts at the time. Cold call of them, be like, hey, can I manage your property? Can I manage your property? Can I manage your property? Um, on Kijiji, anytime someone posted a per sale by owner lease that they had, whether it was a duplex, triplex, I called them up, be like, hey, can I lease your property? Can I lease your property? Can I lease your property? Even though they had the ad for lease, I was trying to win their business. So yeah, started with me leasing out the dude's triplex and then I got his business of a couple of rentals and yeah, I was kind of slowly scaled that to uh six or eight units, realized that property managers are one of the least underpaid and most overworked people in the entire profession. That is my opinion. <laughs> and wanted out of that company the uh, second I kind of realized that. Yeah, that makes sense. And how were you able to find a buyer for it? Did you just start approaching some of these bigger property management companies and then told them that you're selling off? Yeah. Yeah. And fun, funny enough, yeah, I just basically just make a list of every property manager in the city, call them, be like, hey, book, sell my book of business, this many units, you know, generate some such revenue, put some financial statements together, and then just sent it to, you know, all the property management companies in the city. And then, yeah, one, uh, it was actually a realtor out in Amherstburg. It's actually Goldmar Property Management, is they kind of replayed yeah. it to Goldmar. But yeah, it was a realtor team out in Amherstburg that he was already kind of a reestablished realtor. He thought, oh, I can just, you know, make it more streamlined, kind of in house. At property managers and realtor business. So he took that over and kind of grew it to what it is today. And I, and I don't think we want to jump on, we don't want to keep on diving down on this, but I have one more question. Curious, because this is like more so like building a business and exiting it, mm-hmm. right? Whether you knew it or not, as you were going through it, how did you guys go about negotiating what price was fair? Or did you kind of just realize too much headache, just take it off my hands, give me any sort of price? It started with how do I determine a price of this and lead it into this is too annoying, take it off my hands. <laughs> but yeah, at the beginning, it was like right as I was finishing my finance class. So it was, it just lined up so well with like when I was schooling at the time. But yeah, there was one where it's like revenue multiplier, where you basically take like the profit company or the revenue of the company, you apply multiple to it and get it that way. And then the second way was basically I could determine what the property management contracts were and then try to put like a present value based on like the term of those contracts. And then you add in like leasing revenue, maintenance revenue, and tried to value based off that. And then I kind of averaged those twos out and then sent them a price. Finance class paid off. (laughs) It was, it was really cool how like it was like while I was taking an accounting class, I was like, all right, we got to do accounting for these property management. It was just really cool was how I'd go to class and learn something that evening, try to apply to my business at the time. And I think a lot of people, especially in these university towns, they could definitely start thinking about implementing a lot of these, right? Because exactly what you did, right? You're in school, your boots on the ground, you, you've probably got some friends that need a place and you can kind of service them appropriately. So I think that's, that's a pretty cool kind of 
entryway into the market and it's a very low cost model as well. You don't even need like, I don't think it's licensed. You might have needed insurance. I don't know if you got it or not, but uh, you know, to each their own, right? But you know, from there, obviously you went into work at CBRE, which is pretty impressive. And then kind of pivoting into the realtor business, which you're, you're still actively running today. You know, tell us a little bit about how you got started the realtor side. And I think what we'd be curious to hear is for anyone that's aspiring to be a realtor, it's always good to know what is the first week like versus now you've been in the business for what, three and a half years, almost roughly speaking. Like how, how have things changed? Yeah. Just kind of give us a run on how that business went about. Yeah. So after a university there, I exited the property management company and I thought, Hey, I really want to get to real estate and I want to work with the big dogs. Like I want to do big deals. I want to see how this mass amount of money works in the city. So that's why I worked at CBRE for a year. I was going to actually be a realtor with CBRE. That's where I was kind of worked there for a year and was kind of leaned into, but it just was way too corporate for me. <laughs> like they were show up nine to five and only kind of work on CBRE stuff. It really bummed me out when I asked the CBRE guys, hey, do you have any of your own deals? And the answer was no. I think right off there, and I was like, okay, this is not the office for me. It's cool they're doing these crazy deals. I learned a lot with them. But after that one year, I just realized I had to kind of do it myself. And then, so I quit there, came a realtor. And in my first week as a realtor, I actually had a couple of friends who were looking for places and managed to do a deal my first week, which was pretty lucky. It usually doesn't happen. But yeah, when I first became a realtor, I really cared about the team and who I was working with. I really didn't care about the brokerage. Really didn't care about online presence. I really didn't care about too much about that. It was do the guys I'm working with have the same goals as me. So I interviewed a couple of brokerages in the city, and I'm sure you guys know a DJ Soma. I interviewed him, and I felt like me and him aligned very well. He was super hardworking guy, had the same kind of goals and aspirations as me, and I was like, "Yep, this is the guy I want to work beside. Teach me everything you know." So he, yeah, kind of helped me helping through that process. And the first week, maybe the first few months, it was really just see as many homes as you could where I would wake up and try to view like four to five homes a day. It doesn't even matter if I had clients for them. It doesn't even matter if I thought they were interesting for someone. I was like, I just need to see as many homes as I can physically fucking see and do video tours for them as well. So I ended up matching with my Google Drive storage in like a month and how many video tours I was uploading to that thing and just had to pay new subscriptions. And it was, yeah, how many homes can I see? How can I actually describe the home? And then how do I enter these deals? And then the people just kind of came after that where DK was like, hey, here's some leads, here's some leads. And I already had these videos, these homes, I already had underwritten the numbers and everything. So when I got a new lead and he talked about homes, I already had an email get sent half an hour later with all the information, all the good tours and everything he needed. That was probably the wow. first week. It was like information overload. Whereas the last couple of weeks, it's kind of more focused on the client specifically. And it's more client, client focused where at the beginning, like I didn't really have anything. And so it's property focused, but now it's more focused on the client, I think is kind of more recent terms. That's really cool, man. A lot of people sort of ease into it. When you look at people get into the realtor business, or Mario, you can attest to this as well. When they join the mortgage business, the first thing people say is you got to start like building your clientele. You sort of went through and became an expert at property and then started building the clientele from there, right? Which is pretty neat. And funny enough, whenever I look at a property and I ask you, you already have the video for it. So for those realtors who are aspiring to, to get those long distance investors, I think one thing that you do is really neat is, is that as you record through the property, it's almost like a home inspection in a sense, right? It, it may not be as thorough, of course, but you're pointing out flaws, things that need to be done. You aim your camera on ABC. And yeah, I mean, you, you basically walk people through the good and the bad of the property. And I think that's what long distance investors 
short of appreciate. They're not just looking at the good of the problem, they're also looking at the bad of it. Would you say that most of your clientele, being in Windsor, right, there's a lot of long distance investors in the city, whereas most of your clientele investors from like the GTA, or did you have a lot of buyers as well down in Windsor? And secondly, were almost all your buyers investors or you did have a lot of mix of home buyers as well? Because those are the two totally separate segments that don't really coincide with each other very often. Yeah, yeah, no, good, good, good questions. And I'm happy you commented on the video tour aspect of it as well. There's a lot of people that do the video tours, but for me, I really try to point out everything bad because like, if I don't point it out at the beginning, it's going to show up later. <laughs> like, is there an oven tube in the house? Is there water damage in the house? What kind of plumbing is it? What does the street look like? Any parking? Just like any of these issues that are going to happen on my first tour, it's going to come up later. You might as well address it right off the bat. So you can either realize if you want to continue with that property or not. But in terms of the clients, a lot of them were investors at the beginning, but it, it kind of made sense because I started out in the property management space. I worked at CBRE. Like I just knew I wanted to deal with and so a lot of my clients were investors and then it was leads from a detail that were coming in as well as once I was working with a client and I had a good time, like referrals, even today is probably like a majority of my business. I don't do too much social media marketing as you guys know, it's just a lot of, a lot of referrals coming in. I would say lately, and it's only been the past couple of months, I've had a lot more first time home buyers that are local in Windsor. I think it's almost a part because homes are actually affordable now <laughs> that people I went to university with can actually afford, you know, three, three hundred fifty K home that they want to live in the nice home. I think that didn't really exist before, but now I think yeah, person home buyers just in the past couple months I've been dealing with, but the past two and a half years just been mainly investors. Wow. Okay. Quickly talking about Windsor as a market, because we haven't talked about Windsor in um, a couple of months or, or so. I know last year we were looking at some stuff and we were talking about it, but what are you seeing as kind of like the strategies that are working in Windsor today? Cause that, we're about to get into your development side as well. Right. But yeah, I'm just curious, like, what are you seeing working? Is it small, single family houses, duplex, triplex, fourplex? Is it multifamily? Is it mixed use? Is it development? What are a couple of the strategies that you're seeing frequently? Yeah, I would say the strategy that makes the most amount of money. And I'll give a quick example on it as well. is really the, the cash for fees business because the amount of calls that I get, it's like, Clark, I'd love to get a vacant property and hire a contractor, fix it up and either refinance it out or sell it. I probably get those calls at least four or five times a week from random people. And I'm just one realtor out here. I imagine there's hundreds of realtors getting those calls. So that strategy, it was really cool and it was really awesome. And it still works to a degree, but it's almost like these vacant homes or vacant units and multifamily are priced in to what the contractor fee would be and the ARV ends up being. Like it's very, it's very rare that I see a vacant single family on the market or vacant multifamily that I look at and like, oh, you can do renovations for this cost and you make them this much money. It's it's just almost unfortunate for some reason priced in and people are still paying that. But for the cash for keys method, there was a sixplex that I helped the client get. I was cash flow negative about last year, year and a half ago. We ended up getting for like 650, 670. Each unit was like six, seven hundred dollars inclusive per rent. And he lived in California at the time and he has some family in Windsor. So he flew down to Windsor, cash your keys the whole building, called me up to the clerk, it's vacant now, was listed. And I listed it. I barely did any great renovations to the place, just like some minor cleaning, and ended up listing it and selling it for nine fifty. About three or four months after we bought it, so we made like three hundred fifty k pretty quickly. And that's just one of like five stories I can give, man. Like just the amount of wealth that is created on capture fees is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely lucrative, but it, it's all it's it's a tough business, right? And there's a mix of who you're doing it to that I think is important as well. 
I have seen investors who buy a building where it's all ODSP and retirees. And is it is it really morally the right thing to do? Right. But whereas if you have younger people, for example, I know one of my buddies that I was helping out bought a six unit in Sudbury and the entire mix was students mixed with some younger working professionals. So much easier for them to rebound, right? Dual income not on a fixed income and they're just progressing through the career. So there's more income potential. It's such a huge, as you were saying, like $700 of what people are renting it for. And usually it's like one person working. It's it's going to be near impossible for them now to rent at 1300 1400 But if you find the right building, as you were saying, with the right mix of tenants and tenants that can rebound from this or tenants that would be open to have the negotiation or the building is distressed, so they, they're eventually going to need to move anyways. That's where like it makes the most perfect sense, right? So it's not like blindly buying any building and trying the strategy, obviously. It's picking and choosing. But sort of continuing on that point, one of the interesting things about Windsor is, is that we're seeing rents blow up in a lot of cities in, in Ontario, right? We've had this conversation with someone in Timmins where the rents in Timmins are pretty much on par or maybe even a little bit more than Windsor. And... It it makes me scratch my head a little bit, right? Because Windsor's a city with over 200,000 people. I understand the income element of it. I mean, even right now, people are barely sort of scratching by. It's tough if you're if you're like minimum wage. But are you noticing the same thing? Like, what are you seeing on the rental market? I'm not sure if you're super involved in it still, but why isn't it catching up with some of the other cities? And, and is it still very busy in the Windsor rental market at the moment? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely not as busy as as before. I don't deal with too many higher end rentals, but I can just speak on kind of the, the bid section there. So I put up a house for rent maybe about three weeks ago now, four weeks ago. And in a week, I had about 300 people reach out to me. I didn't even do showings. I just did open houses because I would not like schedule that many people. It was copy and paste, come to this house at this time, copy and come to this house then, come to this house then. It was a three bed, one bath for like 1850 plus utilities. So we 100, 200 bucks under. But for me personally, I would much rather be 100 to 150 under market rent, but have like 20 applications I get to sit through. That's probably not what most investors are going to think or do. <laughs> but personally, I kind of like doing it that way. Just because I think I was talking with a couple of property managers as well about this. When you go for the super high rental rate, you got to be like super strict on who you're going for. Like they got to be making like 100K plus and there has to be reason that they're renting instead of buying, especially in Windsor. I'm not too familiar with GTA or Timmins, but it's it's right around that like 2000 to 2400 a month for a normal house that you have to have that buyer that's you know super strict, super vetted, makes 100K plus a year. That why is that person not buying that house? Like for that price in Windsor, it's almost roughly the same. Like I said, I'm not sure about Timmins or GTA, but just talk to property managers and other people that when you're rent, trying to get that high rent, like they'll come rent it and then turn into a buyer lead for a realtor because they're like, shit, why am I, why am I doing this? I know for the average, you know, two bedroom, one bedroom, three bedroom for the right price, those are still pretty hot, but at the higher end of the range, it's like, why, why, why are they just not buying? Yeah, I think that makes sense because in, in some of those other areas, like for, for Timmins, for example, it may be people moving in and out. Windsor's a huge city. So if you're making 100K, you probably want to buy and live there forever, right? So that, yeah. that sort of makes sense. <laughs> I have one more market question, but my, did you have any more market questions as well or? No, I, I think that's a good, good theory behind it. Cause I know it's something that me and Austin have brainstormed or, or debated versus so many conversations. It's just why is Windsor's rents not going up? 
But I think it comes down to a transitory population. Like Timmins has miners that come and go like every six months or a year, right? And they don't want to necessarily set down roots. I don't know for sure about Sudbury, but I'm assuming there's a decent like mining population there as well that yeah. is kind of contributing to those higher rents. But yeah, go ahead, Nelson. Yeah. So my question here is, let's say that I'm looking at uh, investing in Windsor as a newer investor. Could you describe to me the general landscape of what's going on? What's the competition from other investors? What's the competition from home buyers? What is sitting on the inventory? What's moving? Just sort of the general landscape. For example, I know like student rentals are all just sitting because of the, the, the licensing program, right? G- give, me, give me the landscape of, of Windsor right now. Yeah. Yeah. And really quick back on that uh, back question as well, just in terms of, you know, people that are, that are buying it, there was a student rental that I had listed that was sitting for a little bit as student rentals kind of are right now. And I was getting off cool, like cool call signs trying, you know, people that wanted to tour it. There were multiple times when it was groups of three to five, like Indian students, they were going to come together and buy a house for the three or five of them. So I've ended like, I've been asked, can I put four or five people on title? Like, Technically, yeah, you can put a hundred if you wanted to, man. <laughs> but so that is a trend that I really haven't seen up until the past few months. That was just me listing a certain rental that I've seen that which I thought was kind of interesting. But in terms of the market, I think first time home buyers are like really coming in full force, like the 300 to 350K range. Like I said, I've had the most first time home buyers who I've ever worked with is kind of around that range. I think multifamilies are hitting the fan like crazy. The amount of multifamilies that I've seen to be decent deals that have just been sitting there is absolutely absurd. Like, I think I have to pull it up, but I think there was a week where there was like 60, like, like 30, no, I think it was like 30, 30, 35, like new multifamilies that came on, but only two or three sold. It was like some crazy percentage of sold to new listings for multifamily specifically, just because those really are moving and the luxury stuff is coming to a complete halt. There's a lot of developers that I talked to that have just let some of their trades people go, not pulling, not pulling the, the you know gun on certain projects. Like in Windsor, for some reason, like small towns outside of Windsor, the pre cons for like 950, 900, and like even like a million for these like nice single family homes, like 20 minutes away from Windsor, used to like fly out like hotcakes during the COVID, but now they're just sitting there. Spec builds have been sitting there dropping 100, 150K on some of these spec builds that are sitting there. Developers like, please just someone freaking buy this. So I think new builds, complete halt some home buyers coming up and multifamily is also coming down. Sort of the general landscape, are there still multiple offers and offer dates or it's happening, but they're failing? Because in GTA, there are offer dates, but quite a bit of them end up failing and get very few viewings. I would say offer dates are actually still doing pretty well. Under the 500k range, like I said, I don't participate too much in single family homes over five, but my first time home buyers, I'd say majority are still offer dates. Yeah. There's before it was like every single property is an offer date, but I'd say still majority, like probably 70 to 80 percent. I'd also say are still offer dates. That that makes sense, right? Because I mean, your home buyers can still afford it three, three hundred fifty K, but the numbers don't make sense for real estate investors. So I guess investors are sitting on the sideline, but home buyers can still get the mortgage to qualify, even with like seven, eight percent, nine percent stress test. Yeah. yeah, which is crazy. But No, we saw that with the property that we sold as well. I think the single family market has been pretty resilient in Windsor, but I see with the investor, investor products, like the obvious, like triplex, fourplex, stuff like that is probably sitting a little bit longer as you said as well, right? Yeah. And just funny story, there was a house in Toronto that was listed for $699. Um, and I was like, fuck, I really want this house. Called up the realtor. I'm like, yeah, what's the deal with this one? She's like, there's an offer date. I was like, ah, fuck it. I just like, I, I just ended the call. Like, I'm not trying to like compete. I'm not trying to play ball. 
And then I, I checked it out like last week and it freaking sold under list. And I was like, well, I guess no one came. And I just totally fucked up an opportunity here because I just didn't want to play ball. So that's a, a lesson for everyone out there. But okay, so so Clark, like obviously the realtor side, you've been 125 transactions in effectively three years. That's pretty significant. But you also started the development side. And which one came first? Was it the realtor or development? Also like the same week, yeah. <laughs> I'd say it's like the same week. I was like, fucking quit my job. Might as well try to and see what sticks. Okay, cool. So what was the transition into development? Because you obviously didn't have experience. It's not like you're a trades guy. I know you painted before, but that's not necessarily quite in the trades, <laughs> right? But you know, what was your transition into that? And especially the first project, did you get rinsed by your contractor? Or was it all pretty smooth or did you just GC it yourself? Like curious about that first build. Yeah. So the first, the first build was probably more u- unique than I guess other people's kind of first builds because my business partner is the one I ended up in the property management company with a little bit. We had a couple other branches that we tried, but nothing really took off. So we tried to do this construction one. So my business partner, Nathan Sly, is kind of a innate in NC Capital. He is like an engineer by trade and he's just really technical, has more construction background than myself. But we knew we wanted to get into construction, new development, and we're really not ones to take on a bunch of risk or debt. Like whenever we do a new development, we always buy the land in cash and sit on it and we'll get funding kind of from that land or from other sources we have. Like it's just really a lot of like our cash as opposed to like debt that gets put on these things. So we thought, okay, if we're going to do a development, we don't really want to raise money from equity partners or debt partners. How do we do a development that is pretty cheap that if we, you know, mess up on or fuck up on, it's not like going to kill us here. So we were going over the bylaws and saw that detached ADUs were thinking wins and we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, why don't we just pull this off? Like, this can't be really that expensive. And at the time we hired an architect, got the plans, submitted plans to the city. And during the city's approval process, they saw that we had this plans for the detached ADU. And it was for some reason, the first one to get built in Windsor. The bylaw came out in like 2017. But in 2020, we were the first ones to actually pull up forward for that thing. So one of the Winston Star articles, guys, Brian found it. And for some reason, must have been a little newspaper or something that actually made the front page of the Windsor Star. So we had a bunch of people reach, reaching out to us from like plumbers, electricians, like all oh, the lift in this project, lift in this project. And this one bigger kind of developer reached out. And he said, hey, you know, I love what you guys are doing. You know, I'm trying to get into this modular kind of space. How about I coach you guys through the construction of this and you teach me what you guys want to do from the modular component behind it. So we're like, yeah, that's that's great. So he, you know, showed us like the subs. He kind of showed us how to build this detached ADU. We kind of hired him, but he was really kind of open book with us and showing us everything. And then from there, we ended up hiring our own employees, getting our own space, kind of building our own modular facility and kind of really kind of took it on from, from there. But so you have your own industrial size, like warehouse where you guys are building your own like modular, like every wall and like everything gets built in there and then taken to site. Is that, is that right? Or am I off there? Yeah. Yeah, no, we got, we got four employees to our industrial warehouse guys uh, out in Essex. We have a warehouse out there and then two in Windsor that are kind of more the onsite guys. Sometimes all four of them go to the warehouse. Sometimes all four of them come here, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a streamlined process in, in that sense. That's super impressive. I kind of want to hear the, I guess the business side of this. I mean, the marketing seemed like the marketing just came organically being the first person to do it. And obviously... It's risky. It's risky being the first person doing anything, right? I'm sure you guys realize that because not always all of the regulations, rules are laid out clearly. So sometimes it's up to interpretation as you go through that. But it paid off because, I mean, you guys got a ton of clients that way. How did you go about scaling that sort of business step by step, right? So you have all of these inquiries. 
you have someone who's able to guide you a little bit. How did you go about figuring out pricing, margins? When did you feel it was the right time to hire people? When did you feel it was the right right time to get a warehouse, right? Because these are all very big financial decisions. These aren't like $1,000, $2,000 decisions. These are tens of thousands of dollars of decisions. And you just got started off in your real estate journey as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was kind of balls to the walls year. The good thing was, is that my expenses were like super low at the time. So I lived with my parents up until honestly, like two years ago, while my first year as a realtor doing like 50 transactions. So like amount of money that I had just in my bank account that first year was like, this is ungodly. This is all going right back into investments of the business. And then just live like, I think I paid myself like my accountant left. So it was like nine or 15 grand or something. Like my first year that I paid myself, the rest of it was just strictly DNC capital. So yeah, the first, and then same thing with my partner, like he has a great job. He works at higher up at another company, bunch saved up. So me and him just both looked at each other and said, Hey, we're going to do this. You know, let's just pull a bunch of money into it and uh, kind of go, go on our way in there. So in terms of the customers, yeah, we just ended up getting a lot of people reaching out from most of the ones that start. We said, okay, so it's kind of like three phases to development that we know over how we kind of go about it. The first phase is permitting and prep. So getting all of your documents together. This is your architecture drawings. This is your grade plan. This is your end approvals, your engineering drawings, surveys, like getting your all your documents ready to submit to the city. That takes about a month and a half. And then the next phase is waiting on the city. So once you get your permit and prep, you submit all your documents to the city. It takes them about like four months, four to five months for them to look at our stuff to approve it. And then once we get it approved, it took us about 45 to 60 days to build a house. So that was kind of the three days process that we kind of laid out for any customer that came to us. We're like, hey, these three phases, so you can kick off a contract, we begin phase one. And this is the rough end date for phase you know, two and phase three. Here's the rough financing terms. Here's mortgage brokers we work with. Let's see if you want to sign up. So that was kind of my job. My partner, he was more the structure management. My job was to get clients in and lay out the terms of the contract and kind of go through the sales process and city process and architecture process, kind of my role. Then my partner took on more of the uh, construction part of it. Okay, that's interesting. So really, majority of the time is really spent waiting for the permits to be approved. Did I interpret that correctly, right? Because like the build, it sounds like it's only take like two months. Yeah, yeah. And that's really because like the warehouse part of it is pretty sweet. Like we have like three tiny homes sitting in a warehouse right now that we're just waiting on the permit to kick in. So <laughs> as soon as the permit goes, it's like a week of foundation servicing install. And then yesterday we actually had a crane day as well. So the crane comes in and then frames up the whole house, you know, the roof, trusses, shingles, walls, siding, insulation, and a day. Like literally it's a day for the crane and the truck to come in, frame all that up. So yeah, the building goes pretty fast. It's a permitting that takes a long. It's annoying too, because like it's the same house we build every freaking time. Like I don't get why they need a four month review process every single time, but that's beyond me. Is it okay, actually two questions. Sourcing the materials. How do you go about building the relationships with suppliers and then getting the tiny home already into the warehouse? Like did you just know the right people? Is it in Windsor, like local suppliers that you're going after? Yes, because suppliers really it's been the past couple months we've gotten really good relationships with suppliers because it's the same. Like the cool thing that I really love about my partner is he's like car manufacturing brain. So he pretty much builds out this whole Excel spreadsheet of like, this is the exact number of wood that goes into a build, this exact number of windows going to build, this exact number of everything. So we can take this whole sheet, submit it to suppliers in the city and say, hey, we need, and it ends up being like, you know, 100 to, you know, 150 grand sometimes if you want to order ahead of time or whatever. So it's just sizable purchase orders we actually get to place to these suppliers now 
and it all gets delivered to the warehouse and then we build it build it from there but the first year and a half it was just running to home depot and <laughs> leveraging the other contractors connections but this year we really started to do that and then actually funny side tangent we needed a specific kind of window for this to be csa approved because when you build the warehouse and ship it on site it's obviously a whole rules and regulations under the CSA authority that we have to abide by. So we needed these like specific kind of CSA windows and no one at Windsor made them. No one really in London made them part of the So I was calling like every single window supplier, found a guy in GTA who had this window. So I went up there, met them in the facility and they're like, Hey, we really don't want to ship these down to Windsor. Like, do you want to be our distributor? And I was like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. How does that work? So I had to go through like interview process and end up being the window supplier for them. And then now we sell windows to other developers in Windsor. And we're at like, oh, three, 400 grand of windows this year, like just purchased yeah. and, and sold from supplier relationship there. So what, when you, like this year has been really cool of like, when you have leverage and purchasing, like those suppliers take notice and, and care. When you think about it, Mario and I know, man, like when you do things in the GTA, suppliers are everywhere. Get a roof done, boom, next day. Window, next day. Kitchen, choose from the 30 or 40 plus suppliers out there, right? But then yeah. as soon as we go to Sudbury, Windsor, wherever, it's like, Jesus Christ, everything is 10 yeah. times the price. You got to wait weeks. So it's it's awesome that you came down and, and built that connection there. And, and all of a sudden, it, it's a mutual win-win relationship. You found the need in the market. And for those who are listening in other areas outside of Windsor, you could probably do the exact same thing in your city, like a Sudbury. I, I don't know if Sudbury has a supplier similar to you, Clark, but I can't see why you can't replicate that in other cities that may not be as established, right? And the other the other question that I have off of, of that was just a random side tangent, other question I had was in regards to cost and, and clientele. So our tiny home, like what does it cost to build a, a, a tiny home and also timeline as well. I know you mentioned the permit timeline, but let's say from the day you submit your permit to when you have your occupancy permit, how long does that take? And is it investors or clients? Like who are building these tiny homes, right? Because I don't, I don't know a whole ton of investors or maybe in my network, I don't know a whole ton of investors who are, who are doing it in Windsor at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd say probably like half is people that are purchasing it either for their grandparents or for their kids to kind of go in the backyard. So I'd say like 40% or half or that kind of market where they're building up for some kind of family in the back. Those, those clients are funny because usually they just pay in cash. Like usually it's an old retiree that has a 200 grand check and they're like, Hey, do we pay it now? I'm like, Oh, holy shit. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. But uh, the investors, you know, they have more kind of fantasy terms lined up. And then from the investor side, what they do is because I'm also a realtor. So it kind of works out that way is that I'll help them find like double lots. They'll purchase the property, sever the lot down the middle keep the home at the lot free and clear, and then use that to build this kind of a triplex model that we have, where it's kind of like a duplex up front and then a kind of home in the back to kind of create three legal units on any residential lot in the city. Doesn't have to be zoned for it. It's a single family plus two in-law suites is the permit in the bylaw that we apply for. So it's three hydrometers, so it's three addresses, three legal everything. The bank used it as a legal newly built triplex. So that's been the more investor sale has been this triplex that we probably built three or four times now. And then the homeowners, they just build the uh, tiny home in the back. And what was the cost of the build usually? And is it uh, always the same? Because you guys are saying you're doing the same thing again and again. Yeah, it's a little bit changes up here and there, but most of the time it's the same. The triplex we build, at least around 520, 525, depending on like the finishes and upgrades and all that kind of stuff that they want. And then the average one bed tiny home is around one 
160. That's like including permits and everything from start to finish. Yeah, permits. Yeah, city wins your time, architectural fees, surveys, foundation. Like when you will hire us, it's like you get the key afterward and you know, walk right in the door. What's the square feet of that one uh, one bedroom tiny home you're building up? I would love the city let us do a little bit bigger, <laughs> but uh, it's 431 square feet for the one bedroom. Then the two bedroom is about six, uh, 670. You're north of the 1% rule then. It's it's like for sure, right? <laughs> you, you guys are probably renting this, this stuff out like what, like 1400? Like it's still brand new tiny homes, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it does say, and you can do plus utilities too. And the coolest thing too, when you build a tiny home at the back, uh, is your taxes don't really change and your insurance mm. don't really change. So when you build a tiny home on the back, you're like, oh, cool, like one like one percent rule. But it's also like they pay the utilities and your other expenses when you own just a regular home don't equate the same when you put a tiny home in the back. And so for the triplex, like that can't be in the back, right? That's gotta be like a lot. Yeah, yeah. So that's when right. they have like, yeah, like a house, the double lock on the side, server that, and they have a big baseline. Then on that big one, you can build a triplex on. You know our one on Campbell, right? So that one would probably be like a triplex play if we were to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. That one zoning is kind of cool. I'd probably push for four if I could. But uh, yeah, triplex for sure. Four bucks if we get lucky. <laughs> Are there limitations uh, to building the tiny home? Like, do you need access to uh, laneway so, you know, emergency services can go in and out, parking requirements? Are there any sort of requirements that may limit some lots and properties to build tiny homes? Surprisingly, not really, because we crane everything in, so we just crane over the main house. As long as electric room and hydro lines are not in the way, which usually they're off the back, or we kind of work around them. But yeah, because we crane it in, really the only piece of equipment that actually has to get in the back is like a mini excavator. And as long as we have a side fence that is like four feet by eight feet tall, we can get that guy in there. We usually place a shipping container at the front of the house, just so all of our materials and supplies get delivered there. So the guys just walk to and from the shipping container. We try to make it a rule that like don't fucking go to Home Depot. <laughs> like if there is not a tool or a supply on site, um, that is our fault and we messed that. Like you should, our employees should not be leaving the site. They should be there on the site. So as long as we can get that on the front, craning in overhead, maniacs in the side, that's in terms of like physically viable. Now in terms of bylaw viable, it just has to be 10% of lot size. If it's less than 10% of lot size, like let's say it's a 30 by 100 foot lot, they just bump it up to the default of 431. So that's kind of where our 431 square foot model came from is most lots we've touched so far, it doesn't beat that 10%. So we got to go 431. And then it's just four feet setbacks from each lot line. And then I forget if it's six or eight from the primary house, but a lot of lots in the city do fit it. It's been very rare that I've quoted somebody that we actually couldn't build one on. Do neighbors ever have an issue with it or or not? Not really. Great question. So it's only been most recently that this neighbor is like a huge pain in the ass. It was just kind of not the best communication from the owner front over like, hey, this is a side lot. Like you're only renting the house. You're not renting the lot itself. So that was kind of poor communication. But what we always do, I actually just did this two days ago. When we go to a new lot, I will go to each neighbor and get $200 and $20 bills and go to the neighbor and say, hey, we're going to be annoying. We're going to be loud for the next couple of months. Here's $200 every single month until we leave. Like try not to call the cops on us. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's been helping. Nice. Yeah, I know. I don't think a lot of people end up doing that. When I think about people doing construction, first thing you do is start it. And then when a neighbor complains, then you offer them. It, it sounds like you're being a little bit more pro- proactive in this case. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Claire, I, I'm curious. I got to go to answer this one. A garden suite, which is basically a tiny home. Like it's not like drastically different from a tiny home here, right? In Toronto, 
costs you about like 200 to, I don't even know, like, like you get all sorts of kind of quotes on the, on the card homes here, right? What is the main difference here? Because 120 is a really good price. That's basically what people are doing like duplicate conversions for in Welland, right? And even, even a duplicate conversion in, in, in Windsor, I've heard it could be like 90 grand, 100 grand, not that I've ever done it there, right? But so is it primarily like the permit fees that are making like Toronto so much more expensive? You might not know the answer, right? But, or are you guys just like getting this like really cheap comparative to the market? Is it the modular homes that kind of makes it really efficient, right? What do you think is the huge outlier? Because people are going to listen to this and they're going to think, oh, I could do this in X, Y, and Z city. And I just want to know, like, is it actually possible at this price point in every other city? And is everyone else just making a crazy margin? Or do you guys have some sort of secret advantage that is keeping your costs down? Wait, hold on, Mayu. What's the square footage of these Toronto ones? Because keep in mind, Clark's is only 400-ish. But I don't think it's like drastically going to increase that much. Like, uh, you know, it's ultimately like wood and a couple like square feet of like flooring. Like it's, so maybe it does, right? Maybe it's uh, something to do with the permits. Maybe like staying at the square footage that you're staying at might keep you under certain permits. Maybe, I don't know, right? But um, it's just every time I talk to someone about garden suites, like, yeah, 200, 250. Like I'm like, oh, it's, I don't know. That's okay. Like I, you know, I'll do it maybe later on in life. But if someone was to offer for 120 on my Scarber prop, you'd be great. <laughs> They'll plop one in there right now. <laughs> That's like 300 a foot. So it seems like standard, no? Yeah, yeah. 300 a square feet. But why is it so much? Is it maybe it's the permit cost in Toronto is like drastically higher, I guess. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd want to cut, cut you off for a sec there. The one bedroom is about like 150, 160. I, if I said 120, I meant 150 or 160. Still less than the 200 mark, but I do agree with you as well. Like our 670 square foot two bedroom model versus our one bedroom 431 square foot model is like, 150 square feet more for an extra like 20 grand meters in charge because you're right it's just more flooring and like drywall and framing like it's really not that expensive it's expensive to build the foundation expensive to build the roof but to build an extra like 150 200 square feet is really not that expensive i think the other couple things that we do as well is we do like helical pile foundation so and we have our own guys that are trained on that as well so our employees will do the foundation for our tiny homes which saves a lot of money. Again, we have a supplier for the Hilco piles that we pull from, from Guelph as well. So we, we source that in, but it's just a lot of like every time we build it, it's like, how do we, you know, save an extra grand or two grand here? How do we save an extra grand or two grand? That could be the permit fees as well. Like Windsor's and Lost Suites are not too bad permit fees. Chatham actually has more expensive fees than Windsor. <laughs> Surprisingly for Dash 80s, they're like 10 grand, whereas we're like... And there's no development charges or anything for it, right? Correct. That's where Chatham, maybe like Chatham's just catching up because we did a tiny about in Chatham last year, but Chatham doesn't have a detached ADU or guard suite permit, like a separate permit fee for it. They just loop it underneath in development. And I'm like, that is crazy. You should have like a separate ADU permit fee, which Chatham doesn't have, which Winter does have. So you're right. There's no development charge. It's just ADU permit fee. They may be putting one in in the future just because they are requiring tiny homes to be tarry on warrantied which we do have now but that is a thing that i know still still for debate and i guess the last thing amayu might have some more questions for for me the last thing to wrap around the tiny home is like if you're an investor and you're doing it is so in toronto the tough part and in some other cities the tough part is and Mayu can actually attest to this is, is the financing part right because a lot of the times they won't recognize a separate structure well they might just hit your triplex or something, but they don't recognize a separate structure as its own sort of 
structure. There's no comparables against that. So it makes financing relatively difficult. For your investors, are they like burring these out? Or are they looking more so long-term play? And then eventually somewhere down the line, they're going to refi. And also, I'm not sure if you have the answer to this. Is there an ARV figure that you sort of have in mind when building one of these? Like how much lift it adds? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know for the detached ADUs because I haven't had too many investors build one detached ADU in the back. Usually they do the kind of tribux model. I'd say the average family, they do the ADU in the back, but the investor predominantly has been the tribux model, and in my opinion so far. I don't have any recent ARV comps, but I do from last year, like middle of last year. We did one for ourselves out in West End. We just managed to pick them a lot pretty cheap. We're like, ah, we'll do it ourselves. So that one ARV did around 715 725, I want to say, which was a whole burr for us, which is great. And then, yeah, we've done a couple more, but I haven't pegged any ARVs from, from those clients. But in terms of the financing, what people typically do, the investors typically do, is they'll get the lot relatively free and clear. They'll get a private loan to do the construction of it. Because the way that we set up our financing is we really don't take draws from the client until we are 33% done construction, 66% done, and then 100% done. And because we go relatively quickly, like still about you know 45 days or every single unit, from the first draw we get from a client to the last draw, it's like three months, like max. Like it's really not too too long to have to build the private funds, and then they just get a refinance out right after. So with the triplex build, banks do associate an ARV to that. Banks will finance on that because it's just a triplex that day. And the ADU in the back, though, has been predominantly bought with in cash for elderly. So I. Don't have too much comps on that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's a really short like holding cost essentially. You're minimizing everyone's holding cost, which is one of the main costs on, on construction, right? So I, I think that's good. I think the game plan for most people is like if you have a fourplex and you add that fifth unit, you can now potentially go commercial, right? Or even if it's like in Windsor, maybe with like because these are new triplexes, like you might even just be able to go commercial on those as well. But yeah, residential or commercial, whatever works, right? But no, that, that's really good, Clark. So I'm just curious, like between between everything that you do, like which one's taking most of your time now? Is it that the realtor business or the or the development play? Which one do you see as kind of being your focus for the next two to three years? Right? Yeah, I'd just be curious on that side. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, it was really just how do I make enough money to fund ends capital and the development game. So realtor was like eighty nine nine percent of my time just just doing deals. Now I think it's shifted more to fifty fifty because our construction guys like they just start still really like seven seven thirty sometimes. So I think. I'll, I'll like usually wake up early, meet the guys on the site, or just kind of do a quick like in call, see what's going on for the day or for the week. Because we have like a site super now as one of our employees. So he's been helping a lot it's just on site kind of managing day to day tasks. So we'll probably group in the morning, especially on Monday morning or sometimes throughout the week in the morning. But it's very rare I get a construction issue past like 12 o'clock. Like usually the construction days are already planned out or all the issues are probably going to be had by like 12 or 1 o'clock or the site super will kind of handle it. Like any big decisions is usually before then. And realtors and clients usually don't wake up until like 10 or 11 a.m. So it's fucking great. <laughs> I do realtor stuff kind of in the afternoon and evening. Then construction stuff in the morning is kind of how I've been doing the day lately. Interesting. And then the second point that we like to ask our guests is, you know, for a newer investor, and I think we've covered a lot in this episode, especially a lot of nuggets. Like if you guys ever hear me and Austin just like, Randomly, just like asking questions off the top of my head that makes no sense because we find it like very engaging and a cool topic. So I think we've covered a lot that we've been fascinated with. But for newer investors that are looking to get started in today's market, what kind of advice do you have to share with them? Big advice, and actually one of my most recent clients just kind of shared it with me, is I'm going to butcher the way they said it, but they're like, Clark, 
thank you so much for dealing with us. I know we don't have a big budget and we've been blown up by so many realtors. Like, thank you so much for spending the time with us. So I think if you're a beginning investor and your budget is not that great, you need to realize that. You need to realize that some realtors, you just might not be worth their time. And that's fine. You're going to find a realtor that'll work with you or build cash at the beginning. Like, you know, you guys with this podcast, like, you know, at the beginning, you just want to get yourself out there, provide knowledge and do do you do you could do it, you know, get in front of the right people. I think people at the beginning need to do the same. Even for myself, like I was just cold calling Khadija leads, like doing leases for two, three, four hundred bucks just to like do a deal. I was like, damn, like get, get me in the game. Like, let me, let me start working on people. So I think the beginning, like people are going to brush you off and not going to care about you because you don't have much to offer. You just got to keep hustling until you find someone that does care and kind of work, work that as hard as you can. Yeah, I know. That's some fantastic advice there, Clark. Honestly, really appreciate your time, man. This has been an amazing episode. Mario and I have been trying to get guests who can speak more relevant to today's sort of strategies that work because it's a changing environment and what's worked the last two years are not going to work today or maybe not in the future as well. So it's fresh to get your perspective on things in the Windsor market and you've accomplished so much. If people want to connect with you, work with you or, or learn from you, how could they best do so? Yeah, Instagram DMs maybe, or you can find my phone number on the Capital website. Both those I'll respond like 100 hours. So <laughs> reach out to those and I'll get back to you. Really appreciate it, man. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, give us a five-star rating, leave a comment. It helps bring great guests like Clark out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.